Hi, uh, this is Colin. This episode is called So Bad It's Good. It's about things that straddle that line. Maybe something that starts out seeming bad and kind of swings around the side of the moon and comes out on the good side. Things that fail so hard that they become successes. And to that end, our producer Carolyn McCusker talked to her own father about an instance where something started out bad and turned out to be good. Let's hear that. So could you tell me the story about you and mom's first date? Sure. We had we had met at a party um, a couple weeks before. I was kind of smitten and asked her to the movies. Um, the movie was The Omen 2. Pro- pro- it was a horrible movie. Um, I spent most of the movie trying to get my arm around your mom. When the movie ended, we went outside and I couldn't find the car. So I spent a good 15 minutes or so walking up and down the parking lot looking for the car. Even went back inside to see if there had been issues with my parking. Maybe it got towed. How was mom acting when you were looking for the car? Um, she, she was a little distressed. But um, then in the back of the parking lot on the top of a knoll or a berm, I heard laughter. It turned out it was uh, all my friends that were at the party a couple weeks ago. My brother Owen had grabbed the spare set of keys and had grabbed the car and parked it in another parking lot. (laughs) Were you like really mad at them? Yeah, I was kind of pissed. (laughs) So pretty humiliating night all in all. But um, I found out later that she thought I must have been a pretty good guy if uh, my friends cared enough to torment me on a first date. All right. Well, I won't hear the work of Lee Grant thus impugned. Uh, But but yeah, Omen 2 is like Gregory Peck is dead at that point. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> and it sounds like a pretty bad date. But then, of course, they got married. They had a wonderful daughter named McCusker. Uh, things have worked out fairly well. On this show today, you're going to hear some stories like that. You're going to hear kind of an exploration. We are going to run our thumb down the knife's edge between good and bad. And this show is special for a few reasons. First, because at the end, You'll hear some real pitches from our producers. These are show ideas that got shot down in our meetings that will be getting a second chance today. And you'll get to vote on which bad ideas might be just good enough to produce. And second, because this show was pre-taped over a couple of weeks and it was, it was sort of cursed. Things kept going wrong left and right. So we're running a contest for you today. We want you to listen to the show and count all of the ways that it's bad. Yeah, we're going meta. Then you'll email your findings to Colin Show, all one word, Colin Show at ctpublic.org. And the first person to catch all the mistakes will get some kind of really crappy prize in the mail. Um, so, because we can't give you a good prize that would violate the concept of the show. All right, now, Cat, now we can play the music. On a cold, dark and All right, those words are important. They are the words uh, from a novel uh, by Edward Bulwer-Lytton. I've never known whether it's said Lytton or Lytton, but I'm about to find out because uh, Adam Kadri, a writer uh, in a wide variety of media who created the Little Lytton Contest or the Little Lytton Contest in 2001, is joining us right now. So, Adam, uh, end the mystery for me. How do you say the, the last name? 
Wow, that is something I've never been asked. My entire life, <laughs> I have called him Edward Bulwer-Lytton. Hey, yeah, that, that's the way I've always gone. But I've heard yeah. people saying Lytton as we've been getting ready for the show. So who knows? Maybe everything I know is wrong. <laughs> well, that would very much stick with the theme of this show in a lot of different ways. So let's take a moment to talk about him. He kind of, you know, he almost has two bad writing contests named after him now, right? There's there's the original Bulwer-Lytton fiction contest, and then there's the Little Lytton contest. T talk about that. Talk about those two contests. Well, to say a bit more about this guy, Edward Bulwer-Lytton was a 19th century writer, and he's probably most famous today for having started a novel with the line, it was a dark and stormy night. Except the sentence didn't end there. The whole thing is, it was a dark and stormy night, semicolon. The rain fell in torrents, dash, except at occasional intervals, comma, when it was checked by a violent gust of wind which swept up the streets, open parenthesis, for it is in London that our scene lies, close parenthesis, <laughs> comma, rattling along the housetops, comma, and fiercely agitating the scanty flame of the lamps that struggled against the darkness. We should say, in, in Edward Bulwer-Lytton's defense, he also coined the phrases, pursuit of the almighty dollar, the pen is mightier than the sword, dweller on the threshold, and somewhat less gloriously, the great unwashed. But he, he could turn a phrase, right? I mean, the, the, the thing that we've been quoting here is from, I think, a novel called Paul Clifford. Is that what it was called? Yes, I believe that's correct, from 1830, if memory serves me right. And so, I don't know, it may not be entirely fair that bad writing contests are named after him. Right. Well, the thing is, is that um, I've actually heard tell of a debate between one of Bulwer-Lytton's descendants and the fellow who started the original Bulwer-Lytton fiction contest, who was uh, Scott Rice, a professor at San Jose State University, and when asked to defend choosing Bulwer-Lytton as the model of bad writing, Scott Rice himself said that the reason he considers Bulwer-Lytton's writing so bad is what he called its perfervid turgidity. <laughs> that is to say, it's really stiff and it just goes on and on and on. Um, and that's what nearly all of the winners of the original Bulwer-Lytton fiction contest are like. They're basically full paragraphs crammed into one sentence and pretty convoluted. Um, the problem, as I see it, is that the idea was that this would be funny, um, but being so long and so convoluted robs these sentences of the comedic impact that they could have because brevity is the soul of wit. So in 2001, I started my own sort of unofficial spinoff, a derivative contest called the Little Litten Contest, which caps the length of these sentences. Initially, it was 25 words. Now it's 200 characters. We should, we should sort of give some examples of winning or close to winning lines. And we should also talk about some of your metrics, some of the standards you impose. It seems to me that in a way, the contestant here is trying to thread a needle and the needle is kind of somewhere in between grotesquely bad writing and writing that a semi-reasonable person might allow him or herself to get away with. Uh, and that somewhere in there is this kind of danger zone that you're interested in. So I want to read a sentence to you, which I feel goes too far in one direction, although it really could have been a home run. All right, here we go. 
Not unlike how mitochondria gives energy to the cell, Alice gave energy to John's heart and penis, both of whom containing dozens of cells. All right, so this is in fact an atypical entry to have made uh, the list of winners. A lot of entrants have the misconception that the more sources of comedy that I pile into the sentence, the better it will be. But in fact, the opposite tends to be true. Mixing different types of jokes in a single entry is usually not a great idea because they tend to rob each other of their punch. So this one I thought was a rare example of one um, that did effectively combine several different sources of humor. You have the old cliche about mitochondria giving energy to the cell. Um, you have a strained parallel saying, hey, these organs also contain cells. You have understatement. The writer says that these contain dozens of cells when in fact they contain billions. Um, and then you also have the mangled language using whom to describe these organs rather than which using containing when contain would be correct. And then, you know, there's the bathos of starting with heart and then going immediately to penis. So lots and lots of different things that make this not so hot as a sentence. Um, and I thought that the sort of snowball effect of all the different types of badness did make this one worthy at least of an honorable mention. Right. I, I feel, not that anyone asked me, but I feel as though getting the mangled language out actually strengthens some of the rest of it. So if you had, and because also our boss, Katie Tularski, has asked me to read this sentence as many times as I can possibly read it. Uh, so not unlike how mitochondria gives energy to the cell, Alice gave energy to John's heart and penis, both containing dozens of cells. See, to me anyway, the, 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 the whole thing pops a little bit more because it's such, such a crazy idea that anyway, that's my opinion. Nobody really asked me about this. Let's try right. it. Go well, ahead. Yeah. I, I actually have um, a perfect example of the sort of thing that you're talking about. One of the favorite sentences of this contest fans uh, is from back in 2007. Um, and it goes, crime, declared the police captain, is everywhere. Crime, crime. <laughs> and... Yeah. I actually wrote to the fellow who originally submitted this and begged him for a rewrite because initially he was going for mangled language. Mm -hmm. um, the original sentence was, crime evoked the head of police forces captain. Is everywhere crime, crime? And I thought, no, no, no. What makes this funny is that the second half of the quote is not what we were expecting. We have that little short circuit in the brain that makes us laugh. Um, but to make the tag this weird, hard to decipher, evoked the head of police forces captain blunts the impact of the real source of comedy in this sentence. And the fact that it tends to be a lot of people's favorite goes to show that it was probably a good idea uh, to go ahead and ask for the rewrite. I totally agree. But it's also people think, you know, writing and judging bad writing is like falling off a log. But it clearly isn't. <laughs> Quite a bit of thought and effort has to go into it. Let's just do one more. This is in some ways, although I'll, I will always have a soft spot in my heart for John's heart and penis. Um, I, I also really like this one a lot. because, <laughs> Well, it'll be obvious why I like it. Uh, this 
is a story about a racist hero who dies at the end, probably painfully, since he'll be shot in the face. <laughs> That's from 20, 2010, I guess. Uh, so tell me, tell me, give me your thinking about this. Um, even though extreme mangling of the language doesn't really do a lot for me, really subtle mangling of the language can have an outsized effect. Um, for some reason, it just really works for me that the author starts in the present tense. He dies at the end um, and then switches to the in timeline future of Hill. You know, Hill gets shot in the face um, as though the author had been looking down at the entirety of the timeline and then slipped and fell into the timeline of the book itself. And then, of course, you know, uh, can't help but uh, note at this point, racist hero. Just in case you were incapable of making that judgment for yourself. Yeah, too. bit of an oxymoron. But also kind of violating the, the fundamental idea of showing rather than telling. Um, right. So if he's a racist, let, let's let's see him be a racist. You don't have to tell us that. So we should say, by the way, people who are listening and feel emboldened now feel as though the kind of glory reaped by previous winners of the Little Litten contest could be theirs. We should say that the deadline is Thursday, June 15th for 2023. And what would people do besides write a really bad sentence if they wanted to uh, enter this contest? Uh, you can just uh, head on over to my website. It's adamcaudry.ac. Or, you know, go to your favorite search engine. Just type in Little Litten. That's L-Y-T-T-L-E to match the L-Y-T-T-O-N. Uh, the contest does run pretty much year round. So if you do miss the 2023 deadline, no need to wait for the contest to start back up again. As soon as the winners are posted, it's time for the next round. So I, I want to say also, we've decided we're running a little contest too. Uh, and that is, uh, if you're listening to this episode, you need to write down everything that you think is wrong with it uh, and things that you hear that don't seem right, uh, everything that you can think of that's wrong with this, uh, and uh, then send your findings to the email address, Colin Show, all one word, C-O-L-I-N-S-H-O-W, at ctpublic.org, and we will send you something Actually, probably something not very nice in in keeping with the, the spirit of this. So as we mm -hmm. go out of this segment, I want to just sort of say that we've been talking a little bit about this idea of doing something poorly intentionally. And and this is something I've actually thought about a lot. And it comes up in a lot of different places. Um, I mean, think about it even like a movie like This is Spinal Tap. I mean, the song's shouldn't really be good. They should be just good enough so that you can stand to listen to them. But really, maybe one of the most salient examples is the movie Florence Foster Jenkins, which is about a real person, a real person who could not sing and did not know she could not sing. Uh, she was played by Meryl Streep in that movie. So uh, as we go out of this segment, uh, you're going to hear a, a, you know, a nice chunky sample uh, of, assuming you've never seen this movie, what that sounds like. But thank you very much to, to you, Adam. Adam Kadri, uh, good luck with your contest. Here comes Meryl or Florence.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So one of the areas we decided to get into uh, in the so bad it's good category, if that's a category, uh, is the idea of smell and fragrance, partly because... It does seem that in the area of perfume, there's a lot of kind of playing around in the complicated areas where things maybe smell bad, maybe smell good, maybe some bad things are mixed in with some good things. By the way, that's my level of understanding about perfume. So joining us now is Haldane King, science writer and air quality researcher. Katie Kelleher is the author of The Ugly History of Beautiful Things, really kind of the perfect guest and book for this particular episode. Um, Hal, I'm going to get started with you. I think, first of all, we have to talk about the nature of smell. Smell's kind of hot-wired in a way that sight and sound are not, right? It kind of gets to skip a step. Yeah. Uh, for sight and sound and our gustatory you know, taste senses, um, most of the senses go directly to our, our thalamus, where we, uh, we think about a lot of our, our main things. So it used to be called the seat of the soul. But smell actually kind of goes around that, and it goes to our reward centers. It goes to our... Our, you know, our sex and our odor reflexes first. It goes to our emotional centers first. It really kind of bounces around uh, and turns on a lot of things before it hits a thalamus where we can really, you know, be conscious of it. Right. So we sort of, I mean, this is, we have reactions that feel like opinions to smell before we really have a chance to think about it the way we would think. I mean, you're listening to something and you think, well, that sounds like the Beatles. I like the Beatles. This is like the Beatles. I like this. We don't do that quite so much with smell, right? It's just there's an immediate emotional, almost visceral thing that happens before we think. Absolutely. I mean, it's connected to your your amygdala uh, more more so than, than your thalamus. And that's where you get fear conditioning. That's where um, your pheromones and alimones and chiromones are, are active. Um, that is where your memory centers get their information. So you can you know, have a smell and it can elicit a fear and you can have a memory about it without it ever really passing through your conscious mind. And it makes it very difficult. It, it's not a particularly rational thing. I think in the piece by you that I read, you know, sorry for getting into gross things, people who are having their lunches right now. But let's say you get really sick, sick, and it's right around the time that you ate some pizza. And maybe it was the pizza. Maybe you just had a bug. Uh, certainly, all the other pizzas that you will be offered for the rest of your life don't have the thing in it that made you sick. But there's almost a sense, a visceral sense of betrayal, right? You smell the, you smell pizza again, and you just, you don't want it. Yeah, if you have a negative reaction to that, particularly something as potent as like tasting bile along with that oregano, then yeah, you're going to you, – a single time can turn, turn you off from pizza. Right. And then this isn't in your article, but I, we know 
that back in the Lyceum, in the time of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, one of the things they talked a lot about was why farts smell bad, but our farts don't smell bad to us. Um, and, and one of the theories about that, I think it was Aristotle came up with it, but don't hold me to it, uh, was that maybe it's habituation. Like, <laughs> You, you smell your own pretty frequently, whereas like some guy on the subway, this is the one and only time the particular peculiar composition of uh, his aerosolized gaseous uh, emission. You're, you're, you've never smelled it before. You're ideally never going to smell it again. So the, I'm wondering maybe you know there are certain things that we just sort of develop a relationship with, even our own emissions. Yeah, I think a lot of us – I mean, for farts in particular, we're trying to tell how healthy we are or if we've you know, <laughs> eaten something or if we're, something terrible has happened to us. But if you smell someone else's, then you kind of feel like maybe you're too close to their nether regions. Yeah. So that's another possible reason we might be having a, a fierce reaction. I'm not supposed to smell this part of you. You and I are not dogs. For dogs, that's like email. You know, I mean, it's just like getting their email address. Um, all right. So, so Katie – Assuming you still even want to be on the show after what we just discussed. Um, well, we should maybe begin by saying there are things that are in fragrances that are on the face of them disgusting, like in terms of where they come from. Since Hal was so nice to uh, introduce butts, maybe we should talk about musk. We have come to recently to associate the word musk with anus, but it actually goes back a little bit farther than you know the recent transfer of ownership of Twitter, right? Musk comes from a, an unappetizing <laughs> place, right? Yeah, musk is a really interesting substance. Um, musk comes from a gland located inside a small type of deer, typically found in Asia. And it's, you know, it's something that you can only get when the deer is dead. You know, you take it out of the corpse of a deer and you have this weird little sack and in that little sack is this precious precious substance that people in the middle ages in europe went absolutely crazy for i mean they loved it they thought it was a really heavenly smell and there's something about um you know, a lot of our perfumery is still based on the history of these animal products like musk and ambergris Right. I, I sprayed some at the behest of our producer, Magruder, just before this particular segment started. I sprayed something on myself that I guess contains ambergris. First of all, say what ambergris is. I think that's so said. Uh, Every storm is serenade. Yes. So that one, um, I like that perfume a lot. That perfume has a lot of synthetic ambergris. Ambergris is a material that comes out of a whale. Um, sometimes it's called vomit, but it's not really vomit. It's like, it's a fatty, big glob of squid beaks that gets stuck in their intestines. And what happens is like, you know, those little sharp squid beaks are in their intestines and the whale forms this like protective fatty coating over it so that their interiors don't get all cut up. And then they pass it usually, I think out of their anus, but sometimes they can be vomited up. They can be slaughtered for these. Um, and then these weird big fat, like rank, you know, gray or black things wash up on shore and people find them. And then when we find them, apparently at some point someone found one of these waxy things, picked it up, sniffed it and went, yeah, I like it. And started this strange trade um, in animal byproduct. And ambergris smells, I've, I've smelled um, a tincture of the real thing. 
And to me, it smelled absolutely heavenly. I mean, it smells like the perfumer whose shop I was in. Um, she runs something called Providence Perfume Company and uses all natural ingredients. She says it smells like a warm flannel shirt that's been hanging on a line. Yeah, I mean, listen, as you describe it, uh, that and the thing that comes out of the deer hiney, you know, those are the things I want to pay $105 for, you know, four drops of them. Um, I just <laughs> like, wow, why would I deny myself that kind of pleasure? Although we should also say how, you know, one point that's probably worth making is you can't really universalize people's reactions to smell anyway. And I think there was like a military, wasn't there a military experiment to find a smell that everybody would agree was disgusting, so disgusting that they would want to get out of the place that they were in because this was going to be a useful way of getting people to evacuate. And and is, am I correct that they couldn't find a, com, a lowest common denominator, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, nobody likes the smell of uh, of, of poo and uh, or vomit or those kinds of things or, or things that are rancid um, or just kind of the general bathroom stench. But uh, it was really difficult to find us or practically impossible to find a smell that smelled dangerous where people would smell it and think, I got to get, get out of here. Uh, most of the time it was uh, something that they could ignore or something they could just associate with something other than, you know, getting sick. Right. And nobody likes those smells on their own because that's something that's really interesting about perfumery is that a lot of the smells that we associate with bad things. I mean, the smell of a jasmine flower also has the same compound that you'd find in feces or a corpse. You know, there's these smells when combined and tempered and toned down can then go back around from being disgusting to good. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about perfumery is how it's an art form that can press our buttons of both disgust and pleasure at the same time. Yeah. And so I should say that I did uh, spray onto myself every storm a serenade. I also have with me, and I'm not a paid spokesperson for dude wipes, but I, I travel with dude wipes. Uh, dude wipes are good. <laughs> um, and so, and they are made of plant fibers and they have no scent. And so I've since spraying myself with the, the, the first thing, I've been using the dude wipe to try to get it off and it's not working. Um, well, we call yeah. that in, um, in the perfume, like perfume head fragrance community, we call that a scrubber. Yeah. So that's a perfume that you really don't like. So you just scrub it off immediately. Right. I actually travel with a guy who is my personal scrubber, Marty. Uh, and he just has the day off today or he would be scrubbing me right now. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, though, what you just said, that that it really is you are toggling between things that are appealing and things that are disgusting. There are maybe different possible reactions. I mean, one of the things that we talked about uh, doing on this particular segment was experimenting with something I'm sure you're aware of called Secretions Magnifique, uh, yes. they, and they have a particular fragrance, which is called 4S which I believe is a sweat, semen, saliva, and blood. Blood is sang in France. That's why there's four S's. But, um, and, you know, they're, they're messing with us, right? They're, they're messing with us saying, <laughs> this really probably shouldn't be a good perfume, but we're going to make you want it anyway. Well, I think they're messing with us. They're also challenging us. I mean, there are people in the fragrance community who claim to like and wear that smell, um, it's not for me, but another perfume from the same company is um, Jasmine Cigarette. And <laughs> a lot of people think it smells like an ashtray. Um, and I love it. It smells like a 
flowery ashtray in a way that makes reminds me of nights out in my early 20s. And I do wear another perfume sometimes called A City on Fire that a lot of people find really distasteful. And I really had a strong reaction the first time I tried it. I thought it was disgusting. But once I started trying this perfume a little bit more, I started noticing that there's a sweater that I had worn when I first sprayed it and then scrubbed it off and then like discarded the sweater. But then I came back to the sweater a few days later and put it on and I loved it. All of a sudden I was like smelling it and going, wait a second, this is this is good. Perfumes also ask you to do that because perfume has, you know, top notes, base notes, and middle notes, you know, it's supposed to open up like a bottle of wine, you know, when you you aerate a bottle of wine and you sip it over time, you're supposed to taste different things. And I'm not, I don't have the best palate, but I can kind of do that mm -hmm. with my cheap two buck chuck. Um, and with perfume, you can do that too. You, you let it sit and you, different things will come out of it. You know, sometimes one of the reasons people really will still use ambergris or synthetic ambergris is because, and musk, they're both scents that tend to come out toward the end. Um, they're also both scents that anchor and base a perfume. So over time that like that um, animal element sort of comes out and blossoms. But I also wonder... Is it also that anything intriguing often will contain elements of risk and um, elements of appeal, elements of attraction? Uh, there's something telling you to avoid it, something telling you to approach it. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm not just talking about smells now. I'm talking about people. I'm talking about all kinds of things. And is that a little bit of what might be going on here? It's kind of like, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about this. There's some things telling me to flee and some things telling me to get closer. I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, back to talking about disgust, you know, a lot of our disgust and what we feel is disgusting, especially as adults who have had, you know, years of experience and time to form our opinions and have culture shape what we feel about things. You know, a lot of what we find disgusting is things that we find um, that are crossing boundaries, um, things that feel um, like they're maybe invading our bodies in some way. I mean, that's with smell, that's something that happens. I mean, we were talking before about farts and, you know, I think one of the reasons we find other people's farts disgusting is because there's a sense of boundary crossing, you know, there's a sense of taboo to it. Um, but if you are familiar with James Joyce's letters to his wife, uh, he was a really big fan of her farts, which, I mean, that's just a fun bit of literature trivia for you. But there's also a sense of risk and appeal that comes with it. There's a sense of everything worth having is going to involve a little bit of danger. You know, a lot of our lives involve crossing borders and the boundary between fresh fruit and decay, I mean, you get wine, you know, you, when we, when we cross these things, we get great sources of pleasure. Um, one of the things I wrote about my book is how, you know, disgust is something that happens when we have too much of something we like. Um, and that that'll happen when we glut ourselves with too much food, we have too much scent, we have too much sex, you know, then the feeling of disgust can come in. But fundamentally, that's these are appealing things. You know, these are food. This is life. This is life giving. Um, so there's something about, you know, playing with attraction and repulsion that I think is 
really, really rewarding, complicated, and life-giving. I mean, it's something that makes us feel alive in a way that's really fantastic. That was a beautiful, yeah, that was a beautiful soliloquy. So, Hal, we should talk about olfactory liberation. There is a way in which I could, let's say I have the bad pizza experience, and now the the smell of pizza just turns my stomach and makes me want to run. But I miss pizza, too, at some level. I've had great times with pizza. So is there anything without, like, going to an expensive specialist who will hook electrodes up to me or hypnotize me or something? Is there anything a person could do about a thing like that? It's great to be aware of what you find distasteful about the smell to begin with so that you can expose yourself to the opposite context. But we also need to be in a neuroplastic state, which means you kind of need to be in a meditative state. You can't be thinking too hard about uh, about the bad smell. Or in my case, uh, it was after a very long workout. I was able to, when I would eat food after that, it was really easy to accept the good. So if you're familiar with meditating or calming down, uh, then you would be able to take in a scent and feel what you associate with it and really convince yourself that, in fact, the smell is not dangerous and it's interesting. Picking out little bits of parts of it, the way it hits your nose, the way it hits all the different molecules in your brain, all those different things, by getting interested in it um, and getting engaged in it, you can you can really reset the way in which it's attached to your uh, your reward centers and your emotion centers and um, pretty much everything else. All right. So this that's a great suggestion, too. Uh, we're going to have to stop here uh, per orders of McCusker. Uh, but we've been talking to Haldane King, science writer, air quality researcher, Katie Keller, the author of The Ugly History of Beautiful Things. I'm going to have a lot of explaining to do when I get home about the way that I smell. Uh, but uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks to both of you. And we're going to take a little break. We'll come back with our final episode where we peer inside the darkest abyss of all, which is uh, producers of The Colin McEnroe Show, whose pitches have been rejected. slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Okay, it's time to say some thank yous before we uh, go into this. And the thank yous would include, I don't know how many people were involved in this. I'm going to guess Cat Pastor uh, at some point. Uh, definitely Jonathan McPants, who's uh, technically producing and whose voice you will be hearing and stuff like that. Uh, the producer of this episode is McCusker, formerly known as Carolyn McCusker, but she rebranded. And we also have to thank all of the people that you're about to hear from, because what we're about to do something we've never done before. We are going to discuss the process by which ideas are adjudged, either good or bad, uh, in, the, in, in sort of harmony with the theme of this show, uh, ideas for future episodes. So we have meetings all the time here, uh, and people, producers bring forth ideas. 
Uh, and I am just incredibly accommodating of pretty much everything. I'm just unbelievably good natured. Uh, <laughs> this is when you guys start chiming in and say no, no. Uh, this is, that was your that was your opening. Uh, our laugh right. is our chiming in. That's right. So what you're going to hear now is senior producer Lily Tyson, senior producer emeritus Betsy Kaplan, the aforementioned McCusker, uh, and producer Jennifer Larue, all of whom would like to discuss ideas that they had for episodes that were just turned down flat in the most cruel and peremptory manner possible. Um, and then at, at the end of this whole thing, we'll find some, figure out some way. McCusker, do we know how they would vote? Yeah, so once we've presented our bad show ideas, listeners can vote on Facebook or Twitter at Colin McShow, or they can email ColinShow at cdpublic.org and the favorite bad idea we will raise from the dead and actually make into an episode. And then, Pants, you have some role. <laughs> you have some role in this that I don't entirely understand. Um, I just generally disagree. You just, what, no, what do you disagree with? I mean, the thing you just said. You have never. You have never. You complain like no all you've the ever... time that I won't have astronauts on the show and I won't talk about video games. <laughs> you, you are constantly but, bitter about but, this. But no one thinks those are bad ideas. You're oh, just okay. not. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, we do have a policy that that there aren't really necessarily bad ideas. Then we could take any idea. And if we did it our way and put our unique flourish onto it, our idiom, <laughs> that, that it would turn into a good thing. You That's, said idiocy wrong, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think it's best if we try some examples of this. So McCusker, you're rather new to the ranks of producers, but you were also an intern here. And it is my understanding that your feelings were deeply hurt by me while you were an intern. So let's talk about your idea and what happened to it. Yes, maybe indirectly, but <laughs> in 2019, when I was interning for you, there was this one show that I almost pitched you about dreams and dream interpretation and what dreams mean. And I thought it would be kind of cool if we got like a dream interpreter to come on the show and then listeners could call in and, you know, describe their dreams and be told what they mean. And Somebody asked me if I was working on anything, and I said, yeah, and I described this, and they kind of cringed, and they go, oh, like, that's a fun idea, but don't tell that to Colin. And I said, why? And they said, oh, well, Colin thinks that there's nothing more boring on this planet than listening to somebody describe their dream. Well, first of all, who is this somebody? I don't want to. It was so long ago. I'm not very (laughs) confident. It could have been Lydia Brown. Yeah. But it also could have been Carbon Vaskov, maybe. I don't know. I'll I'll edit myself out saying these words because I don't I don't know for sure who it is. It was <laughs> no, throw them both don't, under the bus. Don't yeah, don't yeah. And Carmen moved to another country just to get yeah. away from this whole problem. So, Lydia can still hear Carolyn, and she could sue her. Yeah. So let me just say <laughs> oh, something about this. One reason I think one one suggestion, one hint that dreams are not that interesting is that the people who are having them have fallen asleep. Which is typically what you do when something not that interesting is happening, right? If you if they were really interesting, you'd be awake for them, you know. <laughs> but so I don't really. I guess I have said that. I mean, I think it's sort of a cliche, isn't it? That that, that somebody telling you about their dreams is boring. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Go ahead. I, so I've been thinking about what you said, what you allegedly said about <laughs> dreams being boring, and so here's what I've kind of landed on. If I was going to a new dentist and the dentist was like, oh, this is funny because I just had a dream last night about my teeth falling out. I would be on the edge of my seat. So I think it matters whose dream you're listening to. And if it's somebody who, who like you'd be surprised to learn that they have a bed 
or like, you know, they have a life, but you can't really picture what their real life looks like. Then I think it would be really interesting to hear about their dreams. And my my intention was wondering why you were saying that. So, um, no, but for, well, first of all, it seems like, you know, your dentist is never going to say that. I mean, your dentist is going to say, you know, I have this dream sometimes where my drill turns into a scythe, you know, and then I just start cutting ears <laughs> off. <laughs> that, those That's are the dreams. Cool. Nobody tells any. Yeah. Nobody tells anybody their psycho killer dreams. We could try to get a psycho killer dream. All right. Well, from like just from a dentist, though. I guess we're getting really specific. The genre of person who I really want to hear the dreams of, <laughs> I've been kind of building to a question actually for you, Colin, yeah. which is. How well do you know Ned Lamont? Oh, you want to know what Ned dreams? Of? Ned Lamont. Yeah, you guys think the, Ned has dreams? He's the governor of Connecticut. I, <laughs> exactly. I think he does. That's no. That's I, what I'm thinking about. Do you guys think Ned has dreams? I want to know that. With the Grateful Dead or something. Well, yeah, that's right. He, or like, yeah, his teeth he's really out he has tie dye dreams. Right. Is he the most interesting person you can think of to ask their <laughs> yeah. dreams? Yeah. Let me ask Wally Lamb his dreams. You know, I'm so, so bored. Can I jump in? Uh, <laughs> I I used to have a recurring dream that I I found a whole new room in my house that was brand new and it was all this space that I could use and I was so excited and then I'd wake up and like. Oh, I don't have that huge new room. And I thought this was unique to me, but I found out that's like one of the most common dreams of all. Ah, I've never right? had that. That yeah. sounds kind of sad, Jen. Oh, it was very sad. I, I, yeah, I've had a dream where I found a room in my house and Chris Murphy was living in it. Uh, <laughs> the whole time I've been there, Chris Murphy has been living in my house and probably having dreams when he falls asleep in that room too. So we have to move on to the next two unloved ideas. Uh, we're going to move on to the story of a girl living on Prince Edward Island or some <laughs> damn place like that. Uh, so Jennifer LaRue, you have the floor. Okay, so this is at our, our regular weekly producers meeting and Goodspeed Opera House happened to have just mounted a new musical version of Anne of Green Gables. And I thought, well, that's a good opportunity. You know, we wouldn't necessarily do anything about that musical, but it, it kind of made me think, have we ever done a show about Anne of Green Gables? Because Anne of Green Gables is iconic, beloved source of many sappy quotes, kind of a proto-feminist. Anyway, it just seemed like an, uh, an idea worth putting on the table. But literally, I could see Colin's eyes glaze over and I could tell that he was thinking about dinner all of a sudden. And, mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, Jonathan leapt to my aid and said, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a great idea. And, and others seemed to think it was a great idea, but um, it, it just kind of died. So I, I pretty quickly moved on. In fact, I, I didn't even remember this episode until Lily Tyson reminded us about it um, in the meeting where we were talking about planning this segment so right that's because lily has a google doc where she keeps everything that anybody <laughs> might have a grudge about i transcribe all the meetings <laughs> oh, yes. and then she she highlights the grudges in red so what what is your you know all these months later colin how do you defend your decision to glaze over in the face of anthony <laughs> um i don't know it just didn't i you know i first of all i'm a dude. I'm a unenlightened, under-evolved dude who's never read an Anne of Green Gables book, and that's it. That's the whole answer. I think right I have no relationship. I mean, it, it is my job as a host to get excited about stuff, and I think I, I do a pretty good job of that on the average day, anyway. But it helps if I have some kind of relationship with the topic. That is a good point. That. A lot of times Colin doesn't really say no to ideas, but sometimes it's just not worth it if, if Colin's not feeling excited about the idea. I agree. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I was just thinking it could be kind of compelling to listen to a guy who thought 
that he has nothing to relate to with Anne of Green Gables slowly over the course of an hour learn why he should connect to it. You know, maybe lots of listeners kind of take your same stance and maybe that could make it a fun show that people learn why they should be into something that they didn't think they would be. Right. No, and that would be... I mean, that's an interesting way to do it. And plus, I'd have to read the books and stuff. That's, uh, the, yeah. I understand that they're great, though. And like that scene where the sheriff comes and the the gables, they're just so green. They're just they're <laughs> so green. All right. Yeah. So anyway, do you have a closing argument you would like to make? Um, I, I think that my takeaway from this is that you would much more be interested in a show about Prince Edward Island potatoes than you would be about Anne of Green Gables. Well, there's a show. There's a show. Yeah. So that means we are going to go. And if you think I'm afraid of these people, you're completely right, actually. Uh, no, we have the two senior producers. Senior producer of the show at the current time is Lily Tyson. Her predecessor, uh, senior producer Emeritus and Betsy Kaplan are here. They both feel that they were brutally uh, turned down about the exact same topic. Who wants to go first? Which one of you wants to begin in explaining what a great show this is going to be? Well, Betsy well, pitched it first, so I'm okay. happy to pass it to you. <laughs> yeah, filibuster. I do remember I thought it would be a really interesting show because of things that were going on in current events. I mean, I think it was around the time that the Senate was considering getting rid of the filibuster because Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema wouldn't agree with something that they wanted and so you see, it's not really riveting even in the pitch. So it's very... <laughs> no, you're very, killing it. You're killing it right now. Well, it's very difficult. And usually, sure, quoted a little more than that. But in this case, you really surprised me because you said, I think that's going to be boring. We got to do something <laughs> different with this. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, that's really blatant. But, you know, I thought there's a bunch of different ways we could approach it. Um, first of all, it's in the news all the time. It's been over and over and over. We've never done a show on it. We've got like the sneaker situation with Wendy Davis, the pink sneakers. Back mm -hmm. in 2003, we could do a whole show on the footwear, for example, of um, filibustering, um, how people go to the bathroom during filibusters. I think it was somebody had to have a bucket placed next to the um, podium or something like that. I mean, is it getting more interesting to you? Even well, anything, anything uh, involving urine, urine yeah. and defecation, yeah. obviously, the, you know, yep. the thermometer goes up. Um, whenever yeah, usually that. when I can apply to more like preteen type stuff, you get more <laughs> excited. Well, I like Wendy Davis and her pink sne uh, sneakers. Those were great. Um, so, yeah, no, I, you know, I, I'm just, I'm listening. I'm all ears. I'm yeah, so see, open to this idea. There's not a lot of enthusiasm in your voice. <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I will say then, so fast forward a few years later, and then I bring up the idea again. And I think at this point, Colin was maybe, he was a little nicer about it, but he did. He was much nicer. <laughs> he did say that he had already rejected this idea when you pitched it, Betsy. And he did say he would consider your idea, Lily, which yeah. I then threw a little hissy fit over. Right. Because <laughs> then he can't do that. that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but here we are. You filibusters for her, but she <laughs> wouldn't do filibusters for me. And then you talked about that for four and a half hours. And you we're know? still not over it. No. <laughs> but I guess my pitch is that I think there's an interesting thing to consider about why this exists. But beyond that, I think it'd be really interesting to hear from people who have filibustered about mm -hmm. kind of how you strategize, right? And I was just reading this really interesting New York Magazine article this weekend about a Nebraska state senator that filibustered for a long time. Um, and I think it's just like that question of like, how do you bring yourself to do this? Like, I, I don't feel like I have enough material for like five minutes of this conversation, let alone like filibustering for you hours. You could green eggs and ham like Ted Cruz did. Right. 
Yeah, you just got to be coming up with stuff. You got to be thinking on your feet. You got to be prepared for everything. And then you also have to be okay with alienating people, which I think is really interesting. I think there's I think there's something there. I, I'm still excited about the idea. Well, well, just think of the sheer amount of time that people stand on their feet to do this. Right. 11 hours, 12 hours. That's a long time. I'm getting it's chills. <laughs> He's just making fun of no. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Colin, so what don't you like about this idea? You know, it does yeah. feel like a little bit like a here and now segment or something. Yeah. Today, filibusters, you know, and so, but I mean. But you're talking about pee buckets with filibusters. That's not the same <laughs> We would make it. I don't think you said pee buckets the first time. <laughs> so, okay. So closing arguments for, uh, for, for filibusters? I didn't prepare anything. <laughs> closing uh, ideas. Um, hmm. I think it could work. I think. There you yeah. go. Well, in that case, we should just do it. <laughs> if you think it could work, I'm sold. All right. So so what happens now, McCusker? You're in charge. Now everybody should go on social media to Colin McShow on Facebook or Twitter, or you should email colinshow at ctpublic.org and vote for your favorite bad idea, and we will make that bad idea into an episode. Beautifully expressed. The, the there's a thing that we haven't talked about that we have to before this ends, though. Okay. And that is? Birdseed. Oh, birdseed. That's right. We have to talk about the birdseed. <laughs> I, okay. I believe that is correct. So what happened here is that McCusker <laughs> 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 asked if there was ever an idea from Colin that we rejected, which the, the thing that came to mind that we didn't really outright reject, but no one really acted on, was this meeting where Colin started out the meeting by saying, <laughs> where does birdseed come from what? as a show idea? <laughs> I bought this big bag of birdseed and it said grown in the USA, you know, like maybe sometimes you get birdseed and it was grown in China or Venezuela or something. Uh, and then I thought, where does birdseed like, do they have like farms where all they do is grow birdseed? Actually, if, if you recall, yeah. the funny part of that yeah. was too Lily's response when she said she jumped on oh, yeah. immediately no, when that immediately. That was you that had was spring a bad idea. Oh, you mean she like birdseed? <laughs> it was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then she couldn't it control was, her I, laughter. I would tell you, my heart was broken at that moment. Yeah. Well, I'll produce the birdseed show <laughs> to make it up for you. Yeah, but yeah. You, know, you'll presume, you know what? You'll make me pay the entire time. You, you will make me suffer if you produce that episode. <laughs> All right. We're having too much fun here. I think we have to go. We want to thank everybody for listening today. This is what's called wrapping up, something the host has to do. We want to thank everybody for listening today. And once again, thanks to McCusker. This is her idea. The ideas that are so bad, they can turn into something good. Uh, we hope you feel that way about this episode that we just did. And don't forget, if you've been counting all the ways that this show itself has been bad, horrible mistakes and untruths and bizarre anomalies, email those to us, Colin Show, all one word, Colin Show at ctpublic.org. You just might win a prize.